Thank you to our sponsor this week, Tony Overbay, licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, and popular motivational speaker. I love the Virtual Couch podcast. I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it again. I love the Virtual Couch and I'm especially excited about Tony's new Magnetic Marriage course. Go make sure you check out all of the incredible work he does, especially that new marriage course over at TonyOverbay.com. You won't regret it. Welcome to I See You, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Welcome to the ICU podcast. This is episode 99, Freeing the Captive with Jessica Mass, Director of Aftercare at Operation Underground Railroad. Listeners, we only have two episodes left of season two, episode 100. That just feels right to end on, right? Thank you for the continued feedback on this podcast and my book, ICU, How Compassion and Connection Save Lives. You can find it on Amazon. It never gets old. I have to tell you, it never gets old hearing how one person has been impacted by something I've written or said. So thank you for those that have given me that feedback. It truly is fuel for me. As much as I like to not need too much validation, man, I sure appreciate hearing how it's impacted a single life. It brings me so much joy. If you know me, there's a good chance you know that I am passionate about this nonprofit organization called Operation Underground Railroad. You may have seen, if you've read my book or looked at it or seen it online, I was honored to have the CEO and founder of OUR, Tim Ballard, write the foreword of my book because this organization truly embodies what ICU is all about. They get in a scary, hard, uncomfortable place and they do something. They do something. And that's what I want you to think about as you listen to this interview. Whatever it is you can do to help, do that. Because I guarantee you'll want to help. You'll want to help as you hear what this amazing organization is doing. Let's turn it over to one of my personal heroes, the woman herself, Jessica Mass. Okay, Jessica, if someone's just hearing about Operation Underground Railroad for the first time, can you explain to them what it is? What's OUR? Yes, OUR was started by Tim Ballard, and he worked for Homeland Security for many years before starting OUR, and he ended up having a case where it was complicated with him being able to help rescue this child and work for the government. And so because of this one child, he left the government and started Operation Underground Railroad with the idea that governments and nonprofits could work together in order to really be able to help save more children. And the vision of that was really with the idea of how can we all work together in unity for the good of other people and having that be the passion of the foundation of OUR has really led into all these other different avenues that we have been able to support survivors and help in different governments and rescuing children. The beauty of that has been that from one person's dream and one person's vision and passion, there's been so many children and adults that have been rescued from human trafficking that are having aftercare, that are living in freedom. But it took really Tim saying, I'm willing to follow what I feel like is right 
and I'm willing to do the hard work in order to start a nonprofit, which <laughs> is um, not an easy task. And he might say that I've heard him say a few times that if he would have known what it would mean to start a nonprofit, that would be a hard decision to walk into. And so I think sometimes in life in general, it's good that we don't know in the beginning what it's going to look like, the personal pain, the victories and the deepest, darkest moments. And so we are just so grateful that we um, as a team get to be serving other countries and working to help empower governments and do trainings and help with rescue operations and undercover work and all these different skills that our team brings to the table. And some of our team was former CIA, some were military, some were law enforcement. And so from the op side, they bring a very specific skill set that they use to serve. They serve the world with their skills and with the goal and the passion of what Tim started was how do we help more children in our own nation and around the world live in freedom? We never do black ops or going rogue or anything like that. It's always connected with the local government and law enforcement. And then we provide aftercare through partnering with different NGOs and nonprofits, both domestically and internationally, to make sure that any survivor that needs resources in a very holistic approach, that they have everything that they need. Very cool. What is human trafficking, if someone's not familiar with that phrase? Human trafficking is when someone is being exploited. So there's force, there's fraud, there's coercion, there's all these different specific factors where somebody is being forced to be either sold sexually or through labor trafficking. So those are the two main ones that somebody can be trafficked through. But basically... If somebody on the street was just like describing what is human trafficking, it's the exploitation of another human being for profit. I feel like what you're most known for is saving children specifically from sex trafficking. Would you say that's correct? That's the cases that you see most commonly? Yes. Human trafficking and children being exploited. Yes, that is really our roots. That's how we started. And throughout the years, we have seen that there are a lot of cases that will come to us where somebody is being used in labor trafficking or it is somebody who's 18 and over that's being trafficked. And as that's happened, our mission has expanded to somebody that's being exploited, somebody that's being trafficked, and both women and children are kind of our focus right now, especially. I worked with a child that was three months old when they were rescued and I was there and I remember looking at this little baby and just thinking, how on earth could this be happening? And then I worked with a woman who was 64 years old when she was rescued and the same thing. And I think, how on earth could this be happening? And we work with every age in between. And I think that sometimes people forget that if somebody is rescued when they're 64 years old or they're 18 and over, that that is less important. And I would actually say that that is just as important. We want to rescue the three-month-old and the seven-year-old and the eight-year-old and the nine-year-old. And a lot of these women that are 18 and over, they weren't rescued when they were that age. And their lives and the things that they've been through are so important that they find freedom 
and that they know that they're not alone and that their life matters. And so then you help them with vocational training and you help them with mental health therapy and building a new social ecosystem, all these different things that they didn't have that opportunity as a child. And so helping empower them as an adult. I just think that every human being should live in freedom. Yeah. And that's why you're the director of aftercare, right? So what is aftercare in the documentary Operation Toussaint? They see a lot of the the jump teams and what's going on to rescue. But then as Tim has said so many times, aftercare is equally, if not more important in the process for these survivors. Yeah. Aftercare, it's a journey where sometimes a rescue, there's months of undercover work and things like that, that go on beforehand. And then the day of the rescue, that's the completion of that side of things. But aftercare is a journey and it's really going through all these different pieces. So we do a lot of partnering with different aftercare homes around the world, over a hundred aftercare homes. Tim and the jump team are awesome about being like, Until there's aftercare in place, we're not going to do a rescue operation. We're not going to partner with a government even that doesn't have aftercare in place because if you rescue somebody and you don't have aftercare in place, it's almost like it's hopeless is what the feeling that comes of if I'm rescued but there's no aftercare, what's the hope in it? When we're partnering with these hundred different aftercare homes around the world, we first vet them. So we go into the country either with the ops team as they're setting up the partnerships with the government or before the ops team sometimes, find different aftercare homes that are established, they're in their country, they know the language, they understand the specific needs. And we come in with the idea of we're here to serve. We're not here to tell you how to do things better. It's like with any relationship as you build trust and vulnerability and all these different things, then you invite each other into the space to speak into each other's lives. And so as we're building these relationships with aftercare homes, we are invited to help build the quality of care in aftercare homes. And so that can mean things like they need a 15 passenger van so that they can do community outings or they can take girls or boys to therapy or all these different needs that a 15 passenger van provides the means to do. Or we have remodeled aftercare homes. We've built aftercare homes. We have put a lot of children and adults through school. That means buying a laptop, paying fees, getting uniforms, all those types of things. And then if they need an extra therapist, we will pay the salary of a therapist to make sure that they have everything that they need vocational training is something I'm extremely passionate about. We've helped start a lot of different vocational training programs so that if somebody is even 16 or 17 years old and they have no desire to go to college, then they might want to be an entrepreneur. So how are we going to empower them in that and teach them? And so we partner with Utah State University through the Huntsman Business School. They have a program called SEED. And it is absolutely phenomenal. And they teach 12-week business classes to survivors that we connect them with. And through that, they're learning the same thing that they would learn at university in an entrepreneur program, but in a way that fits their needs and their country and the specific things that they're passionate about. 
So there's lots of different, (laughs) there's so many different avenues of aftercare. But I think one of the things that I just love about our team and aftercare is that it really is person-centered. Some people want to be a hairdresser and some people want to be a lawyer and some people want to be a social worker and some people want to design jewelry and everything in between. And so when it's person-centered and aftercare is really sitting down with a survivor and saying, what do you want to do? And you see kids and adults sometimes where that hasn't even been an option for so long. And they suddenly are like, what do I want to do? I get to dream again. And you see this light and this beauty just come and it radiates from them. That's where hope and joy and those specific types of feelings start to radiate from them and you just see somebody start to believe in themselves, to believe that they know what their heart's desire is to do with their lives. And so it's awesome to walk through that journey with a lot of survivors and see them graduate. I mean, I've been to so many graduations and, you know, baby showers and weddings where you just see them, they're like, so many survivors, they're like, I want to be a mom. And then you see them and their just excitement about being a mom. So there's all these different aspects of aftercare. It really is. How can we partner with aftercare homes so that they know that they're not alone? I think a burnout rate happens a lot within social work. So just making sure that aftercare homes and staff know that we're there with them. We want to be family and teammates and all these different things. And then also that survivors know that they are never alone, that they really do have a community that we will walk with them through thick and thin with whatever that looks like. It sounds like an incredibly meaningful and fulfilling job. I'm sure it also takes its toll, like you talked about, with the burnout rates. There was a therapist I went to once, and I remember her saying to me when I was in a really dark place, saying, I hope you don't take this in the wrong way, but when I go home on the weekend, I I try not to think about this. And we talked about that idea of separating That was hard for me at the time because I I didn't want to feel alone in my hole. I wanted someone to be in there with me. I talk about this a little bit in my book, but there is something to not getting in the hole and staying there, but being able to help people out of the hole. Do you have ways you do that? Do you have to separate a little bit in your personal life so that you can be really effective in the job you have? It's a great question. It's long-winded. Sorry. (laughs) No, that's a great question. And I think it's something that people within nonprofit have to really understand when they're going into it, if they're going to be within any type of service field in general. But so I've worked in nonprofit for 20 years and I have been awesome at it sometimes and sometimes I haven't and I've been <laughs> to the point of being burnt out and ready to go work at Starbucks. <laughs> that's, the, you know, that's the real behind the scenes feeling sometimes. But I will say the things that I've learned throughout the years is that if I can be fully present, no matter where I am, then one, the person that I'm with knows I care about them and I'm here with them. My mind's not thinking about something else. And then if I am talking with a survivor or I'm, you know, in one of the 20 plus countries that we work in, then I'm fully there. And I feel like that's really helped me just to figure out how to be fully present no matter where I am. And when I catch myself with friends at 
dinner and I'm thinking about Africa or South America or the Middle East or wherever it is, I have to be accountable to myself and say, one, Jessica, you're important. I think that's something too I've learned throughout the years is you have to love yourself as much as you love serving. Sometimes people get in this mentality of if you don't love yourself, then you're a better servant to the world. Right. And that lie, one, it messes people up. How do you communicate to somebody else? You're fully loved. You're valued. You are priceless and not see yourself in the same way. Well, it's hypocritical. I mean, that's another thing I've talked about is just you cannot fully have 100% compassion with integrity if you don't believe it for yourself. There's some, some hypocrisy there, right? If you don't practice what you preach in here in your head, but you believe it for someone else, there's there's that dissonance, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yep, absolutely. And I think people go back back and forth of how do you love yourself and how do you love other people? But I think when you do love yourself and value the relationships you have in your own personal life, you really do become a better servant to the world. Yeah, you're able to model and show what that looks like. Like you said, if I believe that every person is priceless and has so much value and and is loved, the word is every person, it's got to be me. And so I... I love rock climbing and I love hiking and I love all these different things. And so I, not only am I, do I try to be fully present, that helps me a ton, but I also do all these other things that I really love doing. Probably like your therapist, just the same of I'm going to be fully present when I'm there. Some powerful lessons in that. I talk about this phrase, I see you a lot. It's obviously the name of the podcast, name of the book. What does I see you mean to you as you work with these survivors? That phrase, I see you. Julie, first of all, that's such a beautiful phrase. I am so grateful for everything you're doing and the people that you are empowering with that phrase and that mentality and and the vulnerability that you show up with in the same way to let people see you. It's beautiful. I think with survivors, the phrase, I see you, is something that when they really embrace that mentality, it is life transforming. They've been used in ways where it's not about seeing someone for who they are. It's about a dollar sign. And when it's, I see you and you are valuable and you are the most incredible person. I think everybody should feel like they're the most incredible person. One of my one of my mentors from from junior high and high school, he used to say, God loves him more than he loves anybody else. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like this funny phrase, but it, it there's this idea of like you've got to have that belief a little bit of like, I am the best, and then you're able to give that to other people. Totally. Yeah. So I think when survivors hear that phrase, I see you, it really does bring the reality to someone that they are that person and that they are seen and heard and valued. I love that. That just reminds me of an experience I had where I was... I was feeling pretty overwhelmed by some things and I went to a place that I go to just kind of like ponder and think and pray and I had this thought come to me of just, Julie, you are amazing. You are incredible. You are like the best. And then quickly after I had this this phrase come right after and it 
was and so is everyone else. And that was really powerful for me because exactly that's what ICU means to me is because I have learned that for myself through some incredible experiences, I then can look at other people and I believe it. I, I look at you and I'm like, no, you're like unstoppable because I believe that about me. It's empty of arrogance. It's just reality. It just is. It just is. Were you involved in OUR before you took this job or was this your first? I lived in you- Africa. What were you doing in Africa? I was working in the ER helping train doctors on how to identify human trafficking, mental illness, and how to help them understand trauma because the area and the spaces that I was working in, everybody saw trauma as being demon-possessed, and so they would tie people to beds and four-point restraints and... Mm. They really just didn't have an understanding of what trafficking was, trauma-based behaviors, and then they would try to have a spiritual leader casting out these demons versus some of the classic mental illnesses and trauma-based and human trafficking. And so I got the, the privilege of just working alongside them. You've been doing a lot of stuff for a long time. Well, when you got involved in work providing healing and help and education in trafficking, let's say, knowing what you know now with all of your experience, would you give yourself any advice on that first day? Like, what would you tell younger Jessica to help prepare her for all the amazing and difficult and meaningful experiences to come? Oh, that's a great question. So I first started working in anti-trafficking in 2009. I was working with teenagers and then I was a foster parent for a couple years. So I worked with kids that had been through extreme trauma, human trafficking. The first child that was coming to live with me when I was a foster parent and she had been trafficked and I felt so overwhelmed. I felt completely inadequate. I felt like there was nothing that I could really give. And I think I would go back to the younger version of myself, especially during that time. Because what I learned through that time is that if you have the power to give love, you have the power to change the world. I think we underestimate what love really is and the power it has. And I think that especially if people are coming you know, out of college or they're in their early 20s, Work on your character, continue to press into becoming the version of yourself you want to be, but press into figuring out what love is. Press into figuring out what it looks like to give that to somebody else when you don't want to be patient, when you don't want to be kind, when you just want to be selfish and it's even internal thoughts and feelings. And so I would just say to my younger self, continue to press into building your character because that's what really makes somebody understand the depths of love because love comes with the ups and downs and you go through pain with people. And another thing I would tell myself is, which was a really hard lesson for me, learn to sit with somebody in their pain when you can't fix it. And that was such a hard lesson for me to, I can't, I came from this, you know, it was about halfway through my career of so far, a career of being within nonprofit up until that point, it was all about, well, how do we fix things? What are our goals? How do we move forward? Like, (laughs) yeah. And I can tell you're a really driven person that way. Right. (laughs) And I believe in people. I believe in people's hopes and dreams. And, and I remember sitting with a, a little girl, she was six And 
she had been through so much and so many um, years of pain and being abused by the age of six. And I remember sitting with her in my hallway and there was literally nothing I could do other than to just be there and just sit with her. I couldn't fix her pain. She didn't really even have words to express what she was feeling or thinking, but I could sit with her. And I think that when we learn to sit with each other, whether it's friends or within our jobs or whatever that looks like, when we can sit with somebody in their pain and not try to fix it, but just be present. Personally, it's painful, but it is it is one of the deepest ways, I think, of showing somebody love. Well, that's like a, a rich, fulfilling life you can choose if you want to, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe surface level, it doesn't look as easy because it's not, but that's the kind of life I want. I don't want easy. I want meaningful and honest. I love that about you. If this is someone's first time hearing about Operation Underground Railroad and what can people do to help? Because there's going to be people that really want to help people hear about the OUR story. I mean, I told you the first time my husband and I were introduced to Operation Underground Railroad. It was, I think, more in the beginning of when it started. And my husband had heard Tim Ballard. I talk about him a little bit in my book and he wrote the forward. He came and spoke where my husband was. I don't know if he was working there or what, but and my husband just came and sat on the couch and he shook and cried because it does impact people. They watch Operation Tucson and something in them is like, I got to do something. Yeah. What can people do to help? Yeah. First of all, I love it when people hear something and they know that they can have an impact. And I think that in order for for more children to be free from human trafficking, we do need everybody. And everybody does have a specific way that they can help. And I love it when Tim says people will know what they can do before we would know what they can do. Because everybody comes with different talents and skills. We have people that teach uh, survivors how to make bracelets and how to be in fashion design. Those are not skills that I have in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) And so somebody that can come in and say, I can teach this. Or somebody that says, I'm going to do a fundraiser, or I'm going to have a showing of one of OUR's documentaries, or I'm a dentist and I can provide dental care at no cost for survivors. We just heard this the coolest story a few days ago about this little kid who heard that there were other little kids that weren't being treated well. And so she was making these little string bracelets and she had sold two. <laughs> and I, I'm not quite sure exactly what the math is as far as if they were 22 cents a piece or it was supposed to be 50 cents and somebody didn't have an extra one or 25 cents, but she raised 44 cents and she was so excited to give it to OUR because she knew that that money was going to go and help other kids be free. There's so many different ways to get involved. You can sign up on on our website and become a volunteer. And then you get a monthly email about different ways to volunteer. If you own a business, you could say, I want to provide jobs for survivors. If you want to do a fundraiser, all these different things. We also have a one hour training that's free on our website that somebody can go on and just become educated. And I think once you become educated, you naturally just start talking about whatever you're learning about. And so then you might be educating one person who then talks to another person who finds out that their neighbor is being trafficked. And now that child has somebody that's intervening for them. So I think uh, there's so many different ways to get involved. 
a few of the things that sometimes people don't think of that I personally love is you can become a therapeutic foster parent and be a foster parent for a child that's been through severe neglect, abuse, and trafficking. You can become a CASA, which is a court-appointed person for somebody who is within the foster care system or within DCFS and really represent them. Your only job is to speak for that child And a lot of times there are situations where a child hasn't disclosed that they have been through certain things and that CASA is the person that they feel confident and comfortable with because they know CASA is representing them in court and they will fight for that child. So I think there's things like that too, where people don't necessarily think about how they can really have an impact, help change somebody's world. And we have that mutual friend where I was first connected with you, Liz Lemon Swindle, who's really embodied that, right? She's like, I can't, you know, she's a little bit older, she would say. And and she's like, I can't go be on a jump team, but what can I do? And she's used her artist skills to to help paint and do beautiful things that way. Liz is amazing. She is amazing. And you can go back and listen to her episode because she didn't want to talk about herself and all the incredible things she did. She wanted to get on the podcast and talk about who you are, which is also another way that she's used her voice and her position to help. Thank you for letting me be here today and interviewing you and talking about these special things. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been fabulous. And thank you for just letting me get to know you a little bit more. Gosh, I hope the feeling in that office with Jessica that I felt at OUR somehow has transferred at least a little bit through this audio. She is the real deal. This organization is the real deal. Go to OURrescue.org and find out how you can help. Thank you again to our incredible sponsor, a great friend and mentor of mine, Tony Overbay. I've had the pleasure of being on his podcast twice, The Virtual Couch, which I never thought would happen. I wish you could have been there the day that I started jumping up and down and screaming the first time Tony reached out to me to be on his podcast because I am a mega fan of this guy and everything he does. Go check out his new parenting course, The Magnetic Marriage, and his overcoming pornography program called The Path Back Recovery, all at TonyOverbay.com. Friends, if you can leave a review on the podcast, and especially if you can share it with a friend, let's spread the message of Operation Underground Railroad. I don't really care if people know who I am or if they know my name, but I really, really care that they know about this organization. I can't think of a greater honor than teaching someone about how they can help to save children's lives. You can contact me and find out more about my book and this podcast all at my website, julieleespeaks.com. For our final episode of season two on the ICU podcast, you will be hearing from just me, the season two finale. I can't wait. Until then, my name is Julie Lee, and I see you. Okay, podcast listeners, I like never do this, but I'm recording something real quick after the podcast that I'm splicing in here just because my audiobook just came out. We've been waiting for Audible and things have been backed up a little bit because of COVID. And I've had several different people reach out to me saying, hey, I'm not much of a reader, but I love to listen to things. And so I'm so excited to say that my audiobook is up on Amazon. You can go listen to it on Audible. And what's cool is they actually put an Audible sample for free that you can listen to. And I listened to it and they actually have me read the entire foreword by Tim Ballard of I See You. And so that's kind of fun. You can go listen to the foreword for free, see what that's about, and then purchase the audiobook if you so wish. Thanks for letting me nudge my way in here again. I see you for reals. Bye.